It's good to have a few minutes to just relax, catch your breath, meditate on the Word of God, think about Christmas. I don't know about you, but it just seems like a whirlwind over the last uh, week or so of activity of, of preparing for Christmas celebrations. Last week when we looked into the Word, we started big and ended small. This week we'll kind of do the opposite. Last week we looked at the first seven verses in Luke 2 that starts on a grand scale. Caesar Augustus, the greatest power on earth at the time that he was alive, the man who ruled the known world, issuing a decree that all of the empire, the Roman Empire, was subject to. As Luke puts it in Luke 2, Augustus said that all the world should be registered. Every citizen in what was then pretty much the, the known world is required to show up, to go back to the town in which they were born in order to sign up to pay taxes, essentially is what the decree is. We move from that wide scale of Caesar Augustus and the whole empire down to a province of Syria, which is the region that Israel is in, and the governing power there that is to enforce that decree to make sure that everyone enrolls. From that empire down to that region, we come down to a man, one individual, one citizen who is a subject of the Roman Empire, who is a carpenter in a town of Nazareth, who is an unknown individual, who has to report back to the tiny village which he is from some 90 miles away, and because he is betrothed to a woman who is pregnant and at nearly at full term, they are going to have to make this journey together and travel together, and there in some place, some sort of caravansary as we saw last week, or a cave, or, or some room, they're, they're basically just a spot connected to, in some way, a shelter for animals, a place that is smelly and uncomfortable and lacks privacy and has all of the least idyllic conditions for the birth of a child. There, they give birth to their firstborn son. Mary gives birth, and that child is laid in an animal's feeding trough as its first crib. In seven verses, Luke moves from the Roman Empire and the house of Augustus in Rome with all of its beautiful fountains and statues and, and splendor across the Mediterranean to this fully insignificant place, this sort of shelter where a baby is born, somewhere off in the Judea province. He takes us across the Mediterranean to that area of Syria that Pompey had conquered for the Romans in 64 BC and then just sort of narrows it down to two people and a newborn baby. And we are given that image as we wrapped up last week. There they are in the midst of what has got to be a difficult scene, crowded scene, as it says, no room at the end. So there is clearly a lot of people that are in the town as part of this census, a lot of activity, and yet there are this husband, wife, newborn baby, who are probably not known by virtually anyone at that point in sort of an insignificant place. So we pick up, we ended with Luke, 7, uh, Luke 2, verse 7. Let me pick up there in verse 7 again and read on into verse 8. It says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. This morning we will work our way down through verse 14, 
For those of you who are back at 7 tonight, we'll go on through verse 20 a little bit later, but for this morning, the theme is Heaven's Declaration. Last week in verses 1 through 7, it was a sovereign decree. It is seeing the sovereign creator of the universe working through the decree of the emperor of Rome, how the God of the universe orchestrates all of the logistics and details to see to it that the birth of the Son of God, the birth of the Messiah, occurs exactly as prophecy had been told in the Old Testament, particularly in Micah 5.2, which says that that would be from Bethlehem, from the city of David. So Luke 2, 8 through 14, that we're looking at this morning is probably among the most famous of Christmas passages, the one that's recited the most. It is the shepherds hearing of the announcement from the angel of the birth of Jesus Christ. This is that first grand announcement, if you will, that Jesus has been born, and it is done by an angel to shepherds. Three elements of this heavenly declaration that we'll just kind of walk through this morning. First, who the recipients are, namely the shepherds. Secondly, how it is delivered, the manner in which this announcement is made. And then third and most important, what is the substance of the declaration? What's the content of it? As you recall last week, all of this is happening at a point in history when the Jewish people are reminded of the fact that they are under the rule of the Roman Empire, that they are subjects to Rome. Whether they like it or not, they are not a fully independent nation, but rather entirely dependent and subject to whatever Rome's whims are, to the power of a government where, where power is concentrated in the hands of just a few men. So this decree that demands that everyone must pay taxes, must sign up to do so, is just a, a reminder of an oppressive life, underneath the, the rule of a godless government, that, that it is ultimately a government that has great military backing behind it that is in control, uh, it seems anyway, of their everyday lives. Uh, for the Jewish people at this point in history, we know that God's prophets, those who declared and said, thus saith the Lord, they have been silent now for centuries. There has been no new revelation. It is only from their ancestors that they can go back and see the Old Testament and see how God spoke and God promised and, and God gave hope of peace and deliverance. And so the Jewish people at this moment are living under Rome in a seemingly dark environment, in a seemingly hopeless state, realizing they are under the thumb of the emperor. That deliverance begins here in Luke 2. That which God has promised is now about to be unfolded. And so whereas last week we went from the house of Augustus in Rome to a place for animals in Bethlehem, now we start this passage on a small stage. It says there's shepherds out in the field in the same region. We start with just a, an, an insignificant, again, group of people that society really didn't care a, a whole lot about, and they are outside of the village. They are just not people who are highly regarded in any way. Verse 8 says they were in the same region, so it's taking us back to reminding us again, same region as Mary and Joseph and the baby. They are outside Bethlehem. Uh, they are in a, a field out there looking after their sheep just outside of Bethlehem, um, protecting sheep, doing what shepherds do in the middle of the night keeping an eye out for animals, keeping an eye out for thieves, protecting their flock. 
History tells us there was a shepherd's field outside Bethlehem. In fact, there's some speculation based on some of the ancient rabbinical documents that the sheep that were cared for outside Bethlehem, that many of them were used for temple sacrifices in Jerusalem. The proximity of Bethlehem to Jerusalem is fairly close, five or six miles. And so the, the idea from some of the, the documents is these are sheep that are, in fact, to be used for those sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. If that's the case, then the significance of it is all the greater that these shepherds are the ones to, to first hear the announcement of the lamb who would ultimately give his life as a ransom. Alfred Edersheim, who was a, a Jewish Christian historian from the 19th century, says there was a specific watchtower outside Bethlehem that was used to protect sheep that would be used for sacrifice. So these shepherds are caring for sheep. Verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. There is a wonderful contrast here between the two parties, the messenger and the recipients. Daryl Bach puts it this way. He says, creation has no more mysterious and exalted beings than angels. Mind you, he says creation, that is among created beings. There's no more mysterious and exalted beings than angels who represent the testimony of the heavens to what is occurring. Moreover, there are no more normal Joes in ancient culture than shepherds. Angels and shepherds. Now, in the first century, shepherding was not a despised occupation. I think sometimes some of the, the history, when we look back at this, we, we sort of denigrate the position of shepherds. The biblical record uses the, the term shepherd in a very um, good way, very positive way, over and over again. Moses, Abraham, David all had roles as, as shepherds in some form or another throughout their lives. Psalm 23 begins, the Lord is my shepherd, right? So it's certainly a beautiful term throughout the scripture, and the New Testament carries that on, and it talks about shepherding sheep and that being an important role in the life of the church. And so shepherds are portrayed in a very positive light throughout scripture. However, it's important for us to remember that shepherding was still among the most ordinary of occupations one could have. There was nothing stellar about being a shepherd. It was a job, and it, it took care of the pay. And, and just as the birth of Jesus happened in the most insignificant of places, so the announcement of the birth of Jesus is given to a people who are of very low regard, who are not exactly looked to as being the messengers to the society or having some kind of major influential role that everyone would want to hear from them. In a society where one's lot in life was pretty well fixed, shepherds did not dream about being kings or rulers or aristocrats. They understood that this was their place, this was the job that paid the bills, and, and they did it in a humble manner. So it is fitting that they are told first. Isn't it? 1 Corinthians 1.27 reminds us that God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to confound the strong. It is a reminder to us that God seeks the humble, that God comes to those like the shepherds who are not the elite and the famous ones of society, but rather those who understand the very place they are in and the need that they have. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus was mocked by Jewish religious leaders for his propensity to minister among tax collectors and sinners. They were appalled by that. And Jesus' response in Luke 5 is, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The first declaration of the birth of the Messiah, again, if we had written the script, 
probably would be to the, the highest Jewish religious leaders there are to get some sort of validation, to show them that, look, this is the one that the prophets have talked about. Jesus comes in contrary fashion. The announcement, rather, is made to those who were least expected to get a visit from an angel to the shepherds out in the field. Both rich and poor, humble and exalted, need a Savior. The shepherds, the poor and humble ones, perhaps were more aware of that need than those who were comfortable and, and rich in life. So the shepherds get this declaration. The manor is pretty remarkable. Suddenly an angel appears there in verse 9. An angel shows up. Can you imagine? They're in the middle of the night, tending sheep, watching for thieves, watching for animals, having normal Joe shepherd conversation, you know, just about what's happening and what's going on in life and what your family's doing. Suddenly an angel appears. And as if that's not stunning enough, it says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. It is an awareness of the, the brightness and the holiness and the drama of the presence of God suddenly surrounding these shepherds. Now we see this numerous times in Scripture where God's presence is encountered by human beings and it is always a fearful, humbling experience. In Exodus 19, when the glory of God descends on Mount Sinai, the people of Israel say to Moses, you go up and deal with him. We're just going to stay as far back as we can because they are trembling with fear at what they see, at, at the appearance of God. Isaiah 6, you remember the prophecy of, of Isaiah being commissioned, if you will, into ministry. And the description there is he is having a vision of the temple of God and it is suddenly being filled with the glory of God. And what is the first thing Isaiah becomes aware of? His sin. His response at that moment is, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The response to the appearance of the glory of God is not, Wow, that's really cool. You know, get the phone and take a picture, right? As we think culturally would happen. The experience of being in the presence of God is one of utter awe and of uh, being stripped of one's of appearance and, and, and all the pretension that we might have and being exposed before our Creator, standing before our King and our God. In the presence of God, Isaiah was overwhelmed. Peter in Luke 5, that, that miracle where Jesus says to cast the nets and they bring in the fish, and, and Peter's response there is to fall on his knees and say, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. The awareness immediately is, This is holy, perfect, God, and he sees me and knows everything about me, and I am undone. He knows that I am a sinner. We could take that all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and Adam and Eve enjoyed wonderful fellowship with God, intimate fellowship until what? Till they sinned. And then God comes to the garden, and what do they do? They run and hide. They don't want to be seen in their nakedness. They don't want to be seen in their sin. They are ashamed. And so that's why here in Luke 2, it's, it's not just the angel that frightens the shepherds, even though that in and of itself is, is rather stunning, but it is the fact that they are now being surrounded by this presence of God, this holiness, this glory of God. Our English Standard uh, versions, the one that I'm reading through, and maybe some of you are at the end of verse 9, doesn't quite capture all that, that Luke says here when it says that they were filled with fear 
It's actually in the Greek the, the noun and the verb form of the same word for fear. In other words, it, it, it's saying that they were fearing with a great fright. It, it's trying to communicate, Luke is trying to say to us, they were terrified. They were, they were filled with fear. They were fearing with fear, if you will. He's sort of doubling up the emphasis there to make the point that the shepherds at this moment are just stunned at what they are seeing. Ordinary, sinful human beings like you and I do not merely stand in the presence of the creator of the universe unless we have been rescued and delivered through Jesus Christ and made righteous in him, in which place we are able to come before him in worship. Tim Keller puts it, human beings are radically threatened by the presence of the holy. That's what's happening here. The shepherds were not just startled that suddenly this is happening in the middle of the night. The shepherds are, are feeling exposed and convicted as they stand in the light of the glory of God. To which the angel responds in verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Stop there. Two-part command here. Don't be afraid. Instead, look. Behold. Stop fearing. Pay attention. The, the, the cure for your fear will be seen in what I'm about to tell you. If you will look intently on what I'm about to say, if you will behold what I am going to say, then you will see the answer to your fears. Don't be afraid. Rather, listen to this good news, the angel says there in verse 10. I bring you good news of great joy. That Greek word for good news there is the, the same word for gospel throughout the New Testament. Good news, gospel are, are interchangeable. It is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the, the greatest good news. In fact, he says, good news of great joy. This is not only good news, this is news that, that when you begin to comprehend it and embrace it, it will fill you with the greatest of joy because you will see that it is for you, that it is a Savior who is for you. And not only that, but it, he talks about the widespread reach of this good news there in verse 10. This will be for all the people. Up until this point in Luke, all of the references to the people, the, 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 that term, are to the Jews. At, 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 through Luke chapter 1 and the prophecies of the coming of John and to Jesus, they are referring ahead to the Jewish people. Zechariah, when he is praising God, the father of John the Baptist, when he is praising God in Luke 1.68, says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he goes on in that passage and talks about these people as being descendants of Abraham. And so there is a, a, a sense in which when it says to all of the people that, that it is starting at least if we're going to work in concentric circles with those to whom Jesus came, that it is to the Jewish people. But we know the rest of the story, that it, it doesn't stop there. And in fact, Luke will make it clear that it doesn't stop there. But we understand that, that going back to what we read back when we looked at John chapter 1, he came to his own. He came first to these Jewish people. He was the Messiah sent to Israel. He was born a Jew in the line of David and offers himself to them. But a little further down, if you look in Luke 2, Jesus, when he is as an infant brought to the temple, there is a, a righteous old man there who has been longing for the coming of the Messiah. In Luke 2, when it's the presentation of Jesus at the temple, this man named Simeon comes to Jesus and to his parents, and if you look at verse 27 of Luke chapter 2, speaking of Simeon, and he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, to present Jesus, to dedicate Jesus, if you will, 
Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. It was always God's plan for the gospel to go to all of the people. And Simeon shows that right after the birth of Jesus Christ, that this will be a light to the Gentiles. This is the Savior of the world. This is the one who is being sent to people of every tongue and tribe and nation, even though he is being first offered to the Jewish people as their Messiah. In the end, he will be the Savior of the world. So we have that, that promise of good news from verse 10, the angel saying, I have good news of great joy. So what is the good news? Verse 11, Luke 2, 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The word for there at the beginning of verse 11. That's the, the key there because it's saying because. So I have good news of great joy. For. All right. Here is the, the substance of where this great joyful news is coming from. It is related to the birth of a child in the city of David. It is related to the birth of a child in Bethlehem. Notice that the angel describes that birth by saying for unto you is born. New American Standard is probably a little clearer when it says, there has been born for you a Savior. That is the idea of, of the, the, the word there. It's the idea of being for you. In other words, you need saving. For unto you, for you, is born a Savior. You need to be rescued. You need to be delivered. And that's what takes him now to the heart of the passage, identifying the baby. This is not just an ordinary child. This is not just the birth of a child per se that is the, the news because obviously the sky has been lit up with the glory of God and the angel has spoken and, and if all it is is a birth announcement that a, a child has been born, that of, in and of itself might not seem all that overwhelming, but it is now how he identifies this child. That is what is so marvelous. The angel uses three titles here in these verses, verse 11 and 12, to describe who this child is. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Savior, Christ, and Lord. First one is Savior, a rescuer. If you were a Jew who was at all familiar with the Old Testament, you understood that that term Savior was often used to describe God. Even though people in the Roman Empire imported that language to apply it to, to Caesar Augustus, you understood as a Jew that when, when there was talk of a Savior being sent from heaven, that this was God himself. God says it in Isaiah 43.3, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So that term has, has deep meaning to the Jewish people. God rescues when Mary is praising God in Luke chapter 1 because he has just given her the news that she will be bearing this child that he is sending, she says in Luke 1, 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She was not at that moment talking about the child in her womb. She was praising the God of heaven, the one who was sending that child and describing him as 
her Savior. And so the amazing message now from the angel to the shepherds is, this newborn baby, this child born just a couple miles away in the city of David, is the Savior. He is the one who has come to rescue and to deliver. He is the one who has come to save from death and destruction. He is the one who has come to save you in a way that you desperately need and cannot save yourself. You need a Savior. Matthew 1.21, when the angel delivers one of the, the prophecies of the coming of Jesus, says in Matthew 1.21, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Name Jesus is the Greek version, if you will, of, of essentially the Hebrew Joshua or Yeshua, which is God saves. So this is a Savior who has come to you. Most of us could make a long list of things we'd like to be saved from in life. Disease, unemployment, aggravation, suffering of any kind, abuse. Go on and on with the list of things we would like to be saved from, not even having to experience or even rescued out of. Jesus came to save you and I from an enemy that plagues every one of us. It is an enemy that, that you and I cannot defeat on our own by our strength, by our intelligence, our savvy, by cooperation with other people, by doing good things. It, it is something that we are utterly helpless to rescue ourselves from. And that is sin and death. That is the fact that we all sin. We all violate God's holy law. The, the creator of the universe, who is perfect and holy, has established his truth and his law, and every one of us breaks it. And sometimes we do so defiantly. Sometimes just because the law is there, we set out to break it. Just because it's almost like a, a temptation to prove that we can break it. We are all sinners. And the just punishment that we deserve for that is death. It is eternal separation from God because we could not stand before him as he being the holy and perfect creator and us being sinners. And so that is why we desperately need a sinless Savior to be the sacrifice and to take our place, to stand in for us taking the penalty that we deserve and then being able to offer us life. Jesus is that Savior. Jesus, it says, is also the Christ that is the, the Greek word for Messiah. If, if Savior describes what Jesus came to do, Christ sort of summarizes who it is that gave Jesus the authority to do this because it has caught up in it the idea of the anointed one, the one who is sent by God, who is commissioned by God to carry out this particular work. So Jesus is not just a preacher or a prophet. He's not some, simply some good teacher of love and peace. He was sent by the God who rules over the universe and declared by the angel to be this Messiah, this sent one. The work of saving that he does is commissioned by God. He is the Christ. He is the one that they had anticipated for centuries. And finally, it says Jesus is Lord, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Think again, if you're in the position of the shepherds, this is easy for us because we've read on and we know how the story goes, but think about it from the shepherd's point of view, that this baby, this infant, laid in an animal's feeding trough, is Lord, is Master, is the one who rules over others because of who he is. Again, a Jewish audience fully understood God is the Lord. 
The sovereign creator rules. What he decrees stands because God is the Lord. So this child, by, by virtue of this term, it, it is beginning to let the shepherds in on the fact that this child is God in flesh. This is not just an ordinary baby. There is something entirely unique about him. And for those who are awaiting a coming champion to rescue them and to rescue their nation, here is the Messiah who will deliver, but he is Lord. He will also rule. He is also God. And he is worthy of your worship. He is not here just to simply to, to provide rescue for you, but he is also here to receive your worship that he is owed. This is the one who the shepherds are encouraged to seek. And as we read on through verse 12, the angel gives them the sign of the swaddling cloths and the lying in a manger. Doesn't command them to go and seek him out. Simply describes this and says, this will be a sign. If you're going to look for him, this is what he looks like. This is how you'll find him. Verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Shepherds again. Quiet, monotonous night, small talk about whatever shepherds would talk about. Didn't have the NFL to talk about that day, but something, something on the same sort of plane, right, that they're just talking about. And all of a sudden, there's an angel. And then there's this remarkable presence of God that leaves them trembling. And then after this angel has spoken to them, there are more angels. There's this multitude of angels. It, it, this is a sight that we find no precedent for in Scripture of multitudes of angels appearing to someone on earth. This is just a remarkable scene for it to be, to of all people, a group of shepherds. Suddenly this, this night that began as this sort of monotonous routine night with these <laughs> nameless shepherds now has heaven declaring the glory of God right before their eyes. These angels are praising him. Luke's use of suddenly in verse 13 helps to give us a little bit of a sense of how stunning this was. And these angels are praising God. There, there are two, two parts there to their message. The one is glory to God in the highest. The idea of singing his praise. Glory is, is doxa. It is the idea of value or worth. He is the one of greatest worth. He is the one who is deserving of all of our praise. And so the angels are, are saying glory to God in the highest. Just an unimaginable, spectacular scene. And then they declare that peace now is shown to men. Glory to God in the highest, and to you on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That last part of verse 14 is worth just a moment here of thought because it is the King James, the traditional King James translation of verse 14 that adorns still a lot of Christmas cards and still goes with the, the peanuts, um, the Christmas show that, 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 you know, we get with Charlie Brown and Linus reading from Luke 2. We get the traditional King James version. And it says, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward man. The song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, echoes sort of that same theme. The bells repeat their song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. The, the problem with that particular translation there is sort of this secularized belief that our culture embraces, and that is Christmas is all about peace on earth. 
Christmas is all about the hope that one day we'll all get along and we'll all sing together and, and we'll remove borders and armies and we'll put our arms around each other and we'll all just be happy together. And if that's the case, the problem is then the birth of Jesus Christ did not bring that to bear. And we're left wondering, well, why, why is that not the outcome? Is God impotent to bring that sort of peace on earth? We still don't have it. That's not really what it says. Verse 14 literally says, peace to men of his good pleasure. Our English standard says, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. It is the idea of peace on those on whom God's favor rests. God is the one who graciously bestows his favor and his peace. While the, the offer of peace is a real offer, not everyone experiences God's peace. It ultimately rests on those on whom God has shown favor to, those whom God has rescued from their sin. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, but the benefits of the peace he earned on the cross are only extended to those who trust in him, who are believing in Jesus as Savior, as Christ, as Lord. We see that over and over again in the Gospels, that as Jesus Christ comes to offer peace and hope and life, there are scores that reject him, and there are always a few that embrace him, that believe on him. And for them, there is everlasting peace with God. That is why the angel can say, fear not, but listen. Look at what I say to you. Because it's possible now for your trembling fear in the presence of God, the, the sense that you don't belong here, that, that God sees your sin, it is possible for that trembling fear to be exchanged for the greatest peace you will ever know. Augustus, at this point in time, was famous for bringing peace to the Roman Empire. After centuries of, of Alexander the Great, and you could go, out, go back before him, of nations fighting for land and fighting for power and using their military strength and capturing other lands and becoming rulers over different places, Caesar Augustus is known for the Pax Romana, the, the peace, the peace of Rome, for using his army to say, that's it, no more. We stop now. But one philosopher who was contemporaneous with Luke wrote this. He says, The emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, but he's unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than even for outward peace. There are limitations to what Augustus and his army could do. They could tell you to live at peace, but they couldn't settle peace in your heart nor could they ultimately settle the greatest need for peace that any person has, and that is peace with God. That is the reality that because we are sinners, we are enemies of His, we are not just in a neutral state when we are not believers in Jesus Christ, we are in an opposition place. We are opposed to Him. We are hostile to Him. We are, we are essentially, those who are apart from Christ are living life as if they are God. I do what I want to do when I want to do it, and I'm not going to have some God who tells me what to do. That is hostility with God. And our greatest need is peace between a holy, perfect creator and sinful human beings. The emperor couldn't do that. It can only come with the work of Jesus Christ. And thus the need for a new king, a prince of peace, one who would not come by military force and demand peace, 
but who rather would lay down his life to win peace by taking upon himself the violence and the wrath of God being poured out against, deservedly so, against the sin of sinners like you and I, but then rising from the grave victorious, having defeated sin and death, and now promising with that eternal life and hope and the promise that he will come again. With the birth of Jesus Christ, true life entered a darkened world, a world darkened by sin, with the greatest news ever. Read a lengthy quote from J.C. Ryle because he says it better than I could, and I'd only be plagiarizing parts of it if I tried to say it otherwise. The head of Satan was about to be bruised. Liberty was about to be proclaimed to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. The mighty truth was about to be proclaimed that God could be just and yet for Christ's sake justify the ungodly. The knowledge of God was no longer to be confined to the Jews, but to be offered to the whole Gentile world. If this was not good tidings, there never were tidings that deserved the name. That's a marvelous description of what we see here when the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy. For Israel, it was a time when it seemed dark and it seemed hopeless, and they wondered where their deliverance would come from. And on that night, that angel announced, the light is coming. This, this little glimpse that you're getting of the glory of God that's lighting up the night sky is, is, is sort of only a down payment on what has happened in Bethlehem with the coming of the Savior. What happened outside that little village on that night for those shepherds was the announcement that the light has come, the Messiah has been sent, the Lord will reign on the throne of David forever, because for you, a Savior has been born. Let's pray together. Father, we could ask for no other better news than that. Lord, it, it is amazing to us when we look around at our creation, we stand in awe of the skillful work that you have done in creating this marvelous planet that we live on and the beauty of it. We look around at our, our fellow human beings and it, we, we just see your handiwork in creation. None of this is by random chance. None of this has just sort of happened in, in ways that are just sort of inexplicable. We, we see it in your word. This is the handiwork of a loving, kind, gracious creator who made a people who then in their hearts chose rebellion, chose to, to take a path that would take them away from you because we, we in our hearts want to be in charge of our own lives. And yet into that sin and rebellion, you gave your son one who knew no taste of sin and rebellion, who never, who never thought or acted in a way that was contrary to the, the law of God. And yet he is the one who experienced the wrath that we deserve. Thank you, Father, for that awesome good news. Thank you for the news that, that brings us joy, that there is hope in Christ. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ, Lord, might you use your word and your spirit this day to bring them to embrace the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ, the hope and the, the life and the peace 
that is not just something that is set aside for, for when we finally die, but that is a hope and a joy and a peace that is for now that we are able to experience in you. Thank you for this good news. May we be faithful, like the shepherds, to not be able to walk away from this good news without telling others, without desiring to, to bring others in, to, to exhort them and to encourage them that, that we see in Jesus Christ the greatest, most joyful news there ever was. And he is to be believed in as Savior, Messiah, and Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we bow before a master who is a kind and good and gracious, albeit just and righteous Lord, but one who desires for his people to experience blessing, to know his goodness, to taste of that fellowship. Lord, help us to rejoice in that during this season, to give thanks for the great gift that is Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.